The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Will have to fend for themselves in terms of finding the right feed. So here we are. We are now streaming live on YouTube. We are live here uh, with uh, 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 Kate Klonick. And, ooh, let me just turn off the sound on the YouTube feed so that I don't have uh, cognitive dissonance. And we are live um, with a glass of wine, one Kate Klonick. Hello. Who has a glass of, what are you drinking? Scotch. Scotch. What kind of scotch? Um, Belveni, Caribbean cask, 14 Ooh, The cask strength Belveni is lovely. Yeah. Um, all right, so I'm going to introduce my mystery guest. Mystery guest is gonna introduce his mystery guest and then Kate is gonna introduce her mystery guests. Um, so, my mystery guest is Mike Chase, better known to the world as at Crime A Day, um, who is, um, for those of you who don't know at Crime A Day, first of all, you should be following it because it is the best Twitter field feed in the world. And Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and about Crime A Day? So I'm... Um... I'm better known as the crime of day guy. I've spent all of my time combing through the CFR and U.S. code to find the most ridiculous federal crimes on the books. I post one every single day. And this July, I'll have done it for six years every single day. I'm a white collar criminal defense lawyer by day. And I'm a parent at the edge of going absolutely insane during quarantine uh, the rest of the time right now. And yeah, and so Mike, there's another really important thing to say about Mike Chase, which is that he is the author of the book, How to Become a Federal Criminal. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the book. So How to Become a Federal Criminal is the authoritative illustrated handbook for the aspiring offender. It will teach you everything you need to know about how to commit crazy crimes like uh, bartering for a flamingo and uh, importing a pregnant polar bear. It came out June of last year. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. Awesome. And my key question, is it a federal crime? To was, um, and, they, and then Corey uh, did what he was instructed and invited someone else. But my first both of my guests, my first guests are um, kind of our internet celebrities. Uh, Ken White, who runs the Pope Hat uh, blog account and Twitter feed. Ken should be in the panel, the attendees, if you can invite Ken up uh, and promote Here him. Here he comes. And uh, Corey Doctorow, um, he should be Corey at, um, and uh, so Ken White and, oh, wow, joining us not from somewhere better than DC, 
Um, and then the other, other guest is Corey Doctorow. Uh, Corey is um, kind of a, just a legend on the internet and in, in real life. Look at this, look at this setup he's got. He doesn't even need a Zoom background. Um, Corey is a science fiction author of a number of amazing science fiction books and an advocate uh, who's worked for years at EFF um, and an all around fun guy. And I thought that both of them would be great. And then Corey, I don't know, Ken, if you uh, invited someone, but... Uh, I did not, that would be beyond my technical capability. Okay, well, we, we barely held it together here technically, but Corey, you invited someone else. So do you yeah, yeah. I, I invited my very, very, very old friend, Emily Herson, who I know from Hippie Summer Camp in Ontario in the 1980s, uh, who is a screenwriter and actor uh, and uh, all around just excellent egg and who uh, lives in Toronto and whose sister uh, works in the healthcare system there and has been a font of terrifying news about that and so, so i don't see emily on oh, the no. uh, um on the list of part attendees emily if you could uh whatever oh you're disguised as kate clonic i see let's ah, rename you emily. also using the, the wrong link Just i'm like comfortable with this is this a federal crime mike identity theft uh, well, I, I don't think that we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. But uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, little yeah. face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Ken can talk about his time in the office. He'd find a way to prosecute it, I'm sure. All right. So, uh, in addition, we have one more special guest. Mike, would you introduce your special guest? My my special guest is impeachment lawyer extraordinaire Ross Garber, teaching political investigations and impeachment at Tulane and uh, has been spending uh, getting some much needed rest after his his year on network TV sizing up uh, the impeachment. So Ross Garber is mine and a longtime friend and colleague. So I want to say uh, Ken White has been uh, uh, we have lived kind of parallel lives for the last few years. We have done uh, we both uh, run blogs, although Ken's been a little bit, you've been a little bit on the quiet side, on the, uh, in, on the, on the blog side, both run legal blogs, and we both do uh, podcasts that are heavily focused on the president's legal troubles, but we have actually never spoken except by DM or text or right. email, and this is the first time we've ever met, and I had no idea you were going to be here, so uh Welcome to you all, and um, and Ross, I've been following your stuff for uh, all through the impeachment. I've, your your conversations with Virginia Heffernan, um, and uh, so this is like the the most fabulous thing. Um, where do we start? Well, can I start? Which is just to say that I'm that. Uh, uh, right before everyone went into quarantine, I was on a panel in LA with Corey um, at, at, a, at, a, at an, an, a, an artificial intelligence panel. And uh, Corey and I were requested our tortilla soup be like extra, extra spicy and made them bring out Tabasco for us, which launched this whole conversation about that has changed my life. And I haven't gotten a chance to tell Corey this yet, but he introduced me to habanero bitters. 
for uh, a bunch of people in the attendees thing. If you want to ask a question, just uh, flag your question in the Q&A section and I will call on you. We will, I'll bring you up onto the screen and you can pose your question. We're not gonna be uh, following the chat really closely because it's uh, too much to do while we're all talking, but we'd love to bring you into the conversation. Just uh, flag your question on the Q&A. We need you to flag your question first because there are these people who were going around um, uh, Zoom bombing, which if you haven't, uh, that's an interesting <laughs> case. Is that a federal crime? Does it count as unauthorized access? Um, everything, everything is a CFAA violation. So we're going to get some of these. We're going to get some of them. We're gonna I could totally make a case for that. I just sure. want the CFAA. If you zoom bomb speaking, this, some, speaking in my somebody, professional by capacity, the way, cyberpunk was a warning, not a suggestion, guys. <laughs> somebody um, uh, actually on the chat the other day uh, zoom bombed our chat and uh, sent a whole bunch of racial epithets. I just want to say, I authorize nobody, and I think I speak for Kate on this, we authorize nobody to uh, misuse our uh, feed. And so if you are on this feed and behaving inappropriately as defined by us, you are exceeding your authorized access and we will <laughs> file a I wish it was referral. that easy. Hey, well, that's a POS violation. That's like... That's, that's the Aaron Swartz version of CFAA. We don't believe in that version, do we? I know. No, I, I, mean, I actually don't. But I'm sure they, I'm sure I, they've all been structuring uh, transactions too. So <laughs> you know, we'll get them. We'll get them eventually. Anyway, feel free to bring yourself into the conversation. Just use the Q and A, and we will, uh, uh, we will bring you in. Uh, Kate, get us started. Yeah, well, welcome to In Lieu of Show. It's episode uh, what five, it's episode five, I'm losing count, um, with like some half-baked episodes that featured mostly technical uh, fuck-ups for like, for about, for a while. Um, but only but one then, episode that was a total meltdown. Oh yeah, no, we've had a couple good ones. And it's, we're kind of, it's, uh, it's we like to describe the show as the, um, as the, it is, uh, while you are all stuck inside, you can watch this show in lieu of all of the fun that you should be having. Um, and uh, we are a, I, it feels like a radio show now, honestly. It feels kind of like a radio show of like bringing in random guests and like bringing in participants and promoting them to panelists to ask their questions. Um, but yeah, kind of we imagined it as an improv plus cocktail party, dinner party, plus Wikipedia of like basically talking about things, raising more questions, and then trying to bring in people the next day to kind of be the people to, to talk about those things. Um, and yeah, so it's very free, free form and, and easy. Nothing, nothing strict. I like, think I've worn the same thing on the podcast for four days now. <laughs> I'm wearing my rhinoceros shirt. Okay. <laughs> It is like a very, that is a rhinoceros shirt. <laughs> it is a rhinoceros shirt. Uh, uh, Emily, I'm kind of curious, where are you based right now? Are you in Toronto? Where are you in Toronto? Oh, hi. I'm in Toronto. And that's where uh, Corey used to live and I remain here and he is in paradise. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, well, where, is, where is Corey? I'm in, I'm in Burbank. I was just doing yard work. So I'm in the backyard. <laughs> 
This is your so this yard? is what ca the cal the famed California lockdown <laughs> shelter in place beneath your beautiful gazebo. Our eighty percent built tiki bar, which is uh, all but slowed to a crawl given given the the inability to ship uh, fire retardant artificial thatch from the far east in this moment. Oh my god! And, and where are you, Mike Chase? Well, I'm in uh, sunny Connecticut. Uh, you know, just the Hartford County, beautiful, you know, beautiful Connecticut, dreary, rainy day. Uh, but that's where I am. Yep. And Ross, are you in uh, in uh, New Orleans? I am in New Orleans today. And, and and so I'd be interested in what Corey's doing. I, I think some people talked about what they were drinking and I had a moral dilemma, well, more of a physical dilemma. Uh, the main structure to my day now is at five o'clock, I sit out on my porch and I socially distance with all the people walking down my street. And that involves me starting with a cocktail. But here it's only four o'clock. So if I started actually drinking alcohol now, by five o'clock, I'd be out of my routine. I'd be all messed up. So I'm drinking sparkling water. But Corey's now, even fur further behind me. As so, is Ken. I assume Ken, you're in Los yeah. Angeles, right? Yeah, I'm only about four miles from uh, Corey in uh, Glendale, California. And uh, it is two o'clock here. And so I can't join you in a drink. I would get a serious side eye with my wife, uh, with whom I just, uh, yeah, I just got it. Um, <laughs> with whom, with whom so I just good. took a nice hike. Yes. So I'm rehydrating with water. Yeah, I, so I, uh, after, after this, I'm taking my sloppy 12-year-old for a bike ride. And that involves a lot of whining. And so if I'm going to avoid losing my shit, I have to, uh, I have to <laughs> until that's done. But when it's done, I will be mixing habanero bitters, bourbon, regular bitters, and a bit of orange peel and a highball glass on a whiskey rock and having a, a lock-in special. Nice. So, so I have Emily, a question a for, for Ross Garber, which is, as a lawyer who specializes in impeachment, what do you do when impeachment is over? Like, it's not gonna happen again. Are you like bored now? Um, luckily I'm easily entertained and I like to think I'm so much more than an impeachment lawyer. I do other stuff. I'm also a white collar criminal defense lawyer, but mostly I've been doing- I love how those overlap so well. They, they <laughs> and the reason why I'm called an impeachment lawyer is because although uh, we have, presidential impeachments very, very rarely, we have impeachments of other officials, including governors, relatively more rarely. So I've represented four governors in impeachment proceedings, and happily, I am not bored. The last uh, gubernatorial impeachment was last year involving the governor of Missouri. It took a lot out of me, and so I don't mind not having one on the uh, on the docket right now. Are you, um, when you think about, like, your dreams for when coronavirus is over and we can all go out again. Is there an impeachment in the dreams? Are you like thinking, ah, you know, the governor of Delaware or, you know, Michigan or, you know, the Northern yeah, Islands, so you know, I, really have coming and I want to be there for him or her. Yeah, so I, I don't know who the governor of Hawaii is. I can't remember, but if I could do an impeachment in Hawaii, that would be okay. <laughs> Jefferson City, Missouri, like I said, it just took a ton out of me. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's not a dream impeachment. I also, you know, do the white collar criminal stuff. Um, 
I also do some writing. I also teach a class at Tulane Law School on political investigations and impeachment. And I do some commentary stuff, which is actually uh, probably what I'm, I'm enjoying the most these days. Uh, you know, the impeachment work kind of opened the door to doing that during the the presidential impeachment and that has been has been fun so i'm doing so well, wait, wait, wait a minute what is impeachment this is like where you and mike chase come together what is impeachment comedy oh no i i meant i said commentary no 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 mike oh, commentary. <laughs> yeah yeah oh, oh, sorry. That's a great idea right it's yeah, a pretty it, subtle difference oh. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. doesn't seem like such a big change <laughs> it is a subtle uh, difference mike what's uh what like you are the legal comedian here. Um, so, I, I mean, although Ken can be pretty funny, I must say. Oh, yeah. Well, say. I've been accused uh, I've been accused many times of being an alter ego of Ken. Uh, uh, lots of times. People think Crime a Day is one of Ken's prolific projects. But I assure you, it's mostly a tool for me to me and him to send barbs at each other uh, across Twitter. Um, but uh, but no, I'm I'm, you know. I, I, Ross, I, I think Ross has never done a homeowners association president impeachment though yet, right? I think that may be <laughs> true. Are you, are you the homeowners president? Well, I, I'm just, I, I should talk to you in a privileged setting after we get off this because there might be some stuff coming at me pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. Fair but yeah, no, no, impeachment comedy. I mean, I think that that's generally provided by the people that are being impeached, but it has provided a huge, I mean, this, this, there's nothing funny about this virus, unfortunately, because we had a year of material to work with and now it's just deadly somber. So I don't know. I'm gonna I, have to find some I actually wrote a comic piece about the virus. <laughs> it, it's not out yet, but I have written it and it is in publication. Oh, um, man. The foreword. Uh, the, the 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 old Jewish Yiddish newspaper in New York asked me for their Passover uh, issue for a uh, set of reflections on plagues. Um, and I, I, I thought the only proper way to respond to that was to write something comic. So I wrote a little piece about the bright side of the ten, of each of the 10 plagues, some of which are hard, like the bright side of lice uh, and, 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 and locusts is yeah. a pretty tough one. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I worked on it and I'll be interested in how angry the reaction to it is when it comes out. I can out. tell you under federal, under federal law, the bright side of lice is that if you sell over-the-counter lice treatment, there's really detailed instructions on how to boil your underwear to make sure that, uh, that you don't pr spread the lice. And it also recommends, yeah, it recommends I if you're being treated for lice that anybody, any romantic partners in your... How should also I did find an awesome bright side of boils, which took some work. Um, but I'm not going to spoil it for I you. Just, I'm yeah, waiting please. For You're not making puff kombucha, are you? <laughs> no, no. Ah. Ugh. I, I am making David. It's just as well we're social distancing at this point, if this is our, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know way too much. I'm just waiting for the McSweeney's uh, article about everyone's like uh, Passover Seder from like Zoom, like all of the, like all of the, uh, uh, like, yeah, the, the, I feel like that's just like waiting to happen, right? I mean, totally. I, 
I've already found that I can manipulate Zoom backgrounds to inspire appropriate attitudes from the associates in my firm and to convey to them my mood and my expectations for the meeting. So it really is a great medium. You know, if I don't think they're up on their hours, uh, then it's just, you know, uh, a matter of a click to, to <laughs> convey to them that, uh, you know, they're in a certain amount of trouble or uh, it's all good. In, in an era of social distancing, can Alexa be your Shabbos Goy for activating the Zoom for your Friday night Seder? You know, we need a, we would need a, a, a rabbinic authority on that. I don't, I'm sure there is responsa on that question, but I don't know what the answer to it is. <laughs> so Emily, before we uh, 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 go to questions from the audience, um, tell us about what you guys are seeing in Canada. How um, my impression is that either that the Canadian government and the provincial authorities have been uh, un uncommonly effective, or you all have been really lucky so far um, in terms of case volume and and spread. Uh, is that right? And, and if so, to which do you attribute it? Is this good governance or is this luck? I, I mean, I, yeah, I can speak from, from my point of view. And my sister works at a, at a hospital. She works at a hospital that is, doesn't have an emergency. So it's like a recovery hospital. And she's been stressed about this since December, like they've been aware, she's been aware that they were running out of uh, personal protection equipment. She's been trying to, she works in supplies. So she's been trying to order it and, and get it together. I think we locked down, not locked down, we're on a, just social distancing and everything's closed. So schools are closed and uh, all non-essentials are closed. Um, is that throughout Canada or is it just in, in Ontario slash Toronto? I think it's across Canada. I don't know which, where people are obeying it necessarily, but in Toronto, we, we are. Um, you can see people, like people are walking around because we, we got to get out of the house, right? But like, I, I personally haven't seen um, people get, getting together, but, I've heard, my, but my friends have been like, oh, there's a party of teenagers next door. Um, yeah, we're seeing, I mean, I don't know, I'm in Cape Cod and people are okay. doing like, they're like ev all these jerks. Like, I mean, I'm one of the jerks who came from the city, but I have seen no one here. Like I have like not left the house and, but there is all of the restaurants and everything are still going gangbusters. And it's just like, they don't have the hospital system to be able to, to deal with this uh, if they have a serious outbreak here like people are in the restaurants because we have takeout only and a lot of restaurants have closed, but some are open. It's now takeout only, but until the last day, until the governor passed, a, uh, the Massachusetts governor passed a law that said that everything went to takeout only. It was still, it was, people were still in the restaurants. It was crazy. crazy. Yeah. So we have a question from R.L. Bynum, who uh, uh, I have brought up on the screen. R.L., what's on your mind? I was just I was just noting that I listen to all the uh, Mueller Report podcasts, and whenever I see you on TV or uh, hear your voice, it just feels like I'm listening to a Mueller Report excerpt because I <laughs> because 
because I came to associate your voice with uh, Mueller report excerpts. So, but I'm not even using my Mueller report voice, right? <laughs> so, close. Um, for example, I could be talking like this. At this particular point, R.L. Bynum expressed the view that Benjamin Wittes's voice really reminded him of the Mueller report, and Benjamin Wittes assumed his Mueller report voice <laughs> demonstrated how far from the truth that actually was. Yeah, I guess uh, you had to you be know, solemn. <laughs> you know, it, it's not a funny text, um, and uh, it's it's a text that was really you know there's like you know prose that's really meant to be read aloud. Like it was a missed you know, opportunity, I think, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, this was not read like written to be like stage read. And so some of the sentences are way too long for out loud reading. So you take, you get like to a comma and then you take a, a huge breath to get through the rest of the sentence. And then your poor podcast editor edits out the breath. And so you end up sounding like you can talk forever um, in this very solemn tone like this. And it's the Mueller report. Uh, but it's, you know, I actually have a little bit more dynamic range in my voice than that. I mean, Benjamin, um, is, is that just a failure of uh, imagination? I mean, at CPAC, they got, you know, a couple of D-list actors and read some texts uh, on uh, live on stage as if it was a play. So, I, mean, so I, actually I actually don't want to joke about that because, um, yeah. you know, both Pete Strzok and Lisa Page are friends of mine. And yeah. I, I uh, found the um, use of that, um, of, of their text messages to create a stage play for political mockery. And then the president met with the actors who did it, a particularly disgusting uh, exercise. Um, and so I, I think like whatever the appropriate uses of, I don't, I don't wanna compare reading a public document aloud with that. I, I, I actually really like, I'm, I'm as much up to a public, comic publicity stunt as the next guy, but I, I really do draw the line at sort of personal humiliation of people. And so I, I, I don't know, I, that, that one, it reminds me of when Enron decided that they didn't want to pay lawyers to redact all of their email corpus. And then it became this research corpus that everyone started to rely on. And it's full of people having affairs and being sad and having angry arguments and emailing their spouses and saying, you know, I don't think this is going to work out. And it became one of the kind of first really big text mining corpuses for research purposes. And there was all kinds of publications on it. Yeah. Right. Um, so we have a, uh, a question from Ted Murray, which seems like tailor-made for, uh, for uh, Ken White and Ross Garber and the other, and Mike Chase and the, anybody else who practices uh, criminal defense law. Um, so, uh, oops, I'm just promoted the wrong person. Uh, excuse me. Um, all right, Tara McReady, my apologies. Uh, I'm going to put you back 
Um, <laughs> I really didn't mean to. Uh, uh, this is a lot of power, Ben. Yeah, you know, I have to figure out how to make, how to like not be the only one with this um, because like you should be doing this too. No, um, we'll figure it out later. Anyway, That's Ted Murray does not seem, <laughs> oh, there he is. Figuring out one thing a day, you know? So, Ted, uh, once, you're, uh, once you're visible, uh, ask your question. Yeah, my question basically was, uh, it's not criminal negligence, is it? Like pretty much any of it. Um, I've seen a lot of tweets from non-lawyers. I'm a Canadian lawyer, um, but I've seen a lot of tweets from uh, non-lawyers on Twitter with, for example, Jerry Falwell having the students back to liberty, Ron DeSantis leaving the beaches open, saying it's criminal negligence. I just wanted to ask if, under American law, I, I'd assume it's kind of similar to here, that courts and legislatures generally don't like uh, a very broad negligence standard in criminal law. Well, yeah, they so don't, yeah. yeah, yeah great question. Uh, so who, uh, who wants to, to start us off on criminal negligence? I'll take a shot to start. So, you know, the, there's no criminal negligence just sort of floating around in the abstract, right? It has to be connected to some specific crime or statute or something like that. So you can't charge someone with criminal negligence. You could charge them perhaps with criminally negligent homicide under some state law. And there are some federal laws, I'm sure, which Mike could give us, he's probably reaching for two dozen of them right now. Uh, Mike could give us a number of federal statutes under which you could be criminally liable for being negligent and for certain results happening. But the question is uh, criminally negligent in doing what, causing what result? So if Jerry Falwell, you know, keeps Liberty University open and people die as a result, then you could imagine in a prosecution for criminally negligent homicide under that jurisdiction's law. I don't know that jurisdiction's law well enough to know if that'd be feasible, but you need uh, a law and you need some act and result uh, that you can be plausibly pitched under that law. And in, in, I'll just add to that, in, under American law, in, in 1968, uh, Herbert Packer wrote this, this great book essay called The Limits of the Criminal Sanction. And it goes through sort of the fundamental purposes of criminal law in the United States and makes very clear that we're supposed to be restrained in our use of the criminal law and that we shouldn't be using the criminal sanction to punish negligence. That's what the civil courts are for. Now, would he be, would anybody who engages in that kind of conduct potentially be liable in a civil court? Absolutely. Um, but a good example, a recent example at the front of a lot of people's minds about when negligence could have been used as a mens rea standard under criminal law, but wasn't, is, of course, this handling of the emails with Hillary Clinton. And Comey's, you know, essential announcement was, look, yes, the federal statute provides for a gross negligence standard, but we prefer not to use it. That's not really what we use the federal criminal sanction for is, is negligent conduct. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. You know, one of the interesting things it's sort of a different issue in terms of criminal law. I went back and sort of uh, was doing some reading about Hurricane Katrina and the healthcare rationing that was happening and the allegations uh, of, uh, of, uh, of mercy killing during Hurricane Katrina and, and indictments of healthcare practitioners uh, for engaging in euthanasia. You know, God forbid, but you know, that could be an issue. So, uh, there was a, uh, an effort 
to give healthcare providers some some immunity uh, going forward for making those kinds of decisions. But those, those kinds of issues might come up uh, this time around too. Well, and Texas as Lieutenant Governor has volunteered. So I guess in that case, they'd be clear. There you go. Yeah, so what, there's, an, there's a wrinkle to this question, which a different questioner, uh, hi, Gen Z, uh, has written in, which is uh, whether the president could be subject to some kind of negligence suit, uh, either uh, in real time or when he leaves office. And I think the answer to that is clearly that he could not um, because of Nixon v. Fitzgerald, which is the case that establishes presidential civil immunity uh, for any acts within the four corners of his official responsibilities. Uh, so I think there's no prospect for, now that doesn't resolve the Jerry Falwell Jr. question or whether there's some negligence action against private individuals, but I think you are not going to see, I'd be curious if anybody disagrees with me, any civil, much less criminal activity uh, arising on a negligence basis against government officials, particularly the president. You know, I, I think since 2016, we've seen this trend where everybody uh, is looking to the criminal justice system to solve things that haven't been solved to their satisfaction by the political process. And so I've spent two years, as a number of you uh, have, saying, no, we can't solve this by prosecuting that person. We can't solve this by throwing him in jail for not calling that witness before Congress. We can't solve this by putting that person in jail for ignoring the subpoena. Um, now I think we're gonna have a few more years of that, but in the context of the pandemic, uh, we're saying we're not gonna solve these particular set of political failures uh, by bringing the very clumsy hammer of the criminal justice system to bear. So an anonymous attendee writes in, Having listened to this and every week's All the President's Lawyers, my hopes of holding this administration accountable through the courts were all but dashed, but I still hang on to a dream of Michael Dreeben riding a white horse up the steps of the Supreme Court in either the McGahn or the grand jury materials slash Mazars case. What are everyone's odds of a decision in each one of these cases before the election? Um, I think before you ask the, uh, you, you have to ask when the court, is the court going to proceed without arguments or is the court simply going to delay arguments? Uh, and if so, how long? And to, if, if the latter, if, if the former, they could decide it on the papers kind of whenever they wanted. If the latter, and I think we're probably looking at the latter, um, you have to ask how long is the situation in which they don't feel safe running oral arguments going to persist to answer that question. Do any of you have uh, other ways to understand what the timing of Mazars and associated cases is likely to be? Well, you know, John Roberts is concerned with the credibility and um, sort of institutional capital of the court. And I think, think one dilemma for him is that some of the options open to him, um, like diverting from historical precedent by deciding this without argument, or doing a new change and doing the argument by video, both are going to seem like he's taking extraordinary steps to get to and decide this case. 
Uh, and the, the, his concern may be that's going to be perceived as a political decision uh, calculated to get the case decided before the election. So I think because of that dilemma, um, I, I kind of think inertia is going to take them to keep delaying uh, and delaying ruling on the case and waiting until it's safe to have a traditional argument. Yeah, to me, that seems likely, but you know, it, it raises, I think, a, a related point, which is, you know, it, at least for me, courts seem to kind of be embracing this crisis and uh, and and using it, not using it, accepting it and sort of delaying lots and lots and lots of cases um, for good, bad, and indifferent reasons. You know, I wonder if this thing drags on uh, substantially longer, whether the court system as a whole is gonna just have to wrestle with the fact that business, not just the Supreme Court, not just those cases, but the business of the courts actually does have to go on and can't be uh, delayed indefinitely and sort of adopting uh, lots of uh, other approaches, including you know, video hearings and the like to actually get the stuff moving. Because right now, it seems like in a lot of cases, things are just sort of uh, being held up indefinitely. And you, saw, and you saw that in the CARES Act, which there's a provision in this 800 page CARES Act, which actually provides for federal sentencings and federal you know, arraignments even to be done by teleconference, which is sort of a, a, a major sea change in the criminal justice system. So, and then just recently in a couple of appellate courts that I have stuff pending in, you know, I've seen courts send out notices saying, hey, if the parties can just get together and agree to waive argument, we're going to start deciding these things on the papers. And you're going to start seeing a lot of that, too. But the great the great thing about all this is that for those courts that are holding hearings by teleconference, you can do an arraignment with no pants on. You know, you just have to be dressed from the, the waist up. So it's that's a really remarkable development in, in criminal jurisprudence. I love it. And at the risk of being apocalyptic, I think that there's like a, a, a genuine possibility that there will be so much not not civil unrest, but but you know uh, trauma and tragedy and chaos as a result of a ballooning of active cases in the weeks and months to come. That it may just be that certain non-fungible entities like counsel, like clerks, like backup clerks, like judges will either be sick or attending to sick family members. Right. You know, especially given that you can't have a third party come in and take care of a sick family member if you are sheltering in place with that family member. And, and there is a lot of unforeseeable, unquantifiable risk on our horizon that we may avoid, right? We may dodge that bullet, but I would not discount that possibility that just court shut down because the judge and the judge who would take over from the judge and the judge who would take over from that judge are all not available this week. Yeah. And I just, I like my, so I think that, I think I mentioned it in my Twitter feed a bunch, but both my parents are judges. They, I grew up with, um, my dad is a local town judge and my mom is a state Supreme court judge in New York. She actually just retired just in time, in my opinion. Um, but this is, this is, the, this is like my dad's town court. He does arraignments. He would get up in the middle of the night to do arraignments in person, um, at two o'clock in the morning and drive. And that is a, that is an, that is an absolutely important thing. They're about to put that person in jail. That person should be there in person. The judge should be there to hear you in person, to see how the, see how the court, how the police are treating you, um, before you, um, get put into jail. And, but I want to actually, I think this is a good moment to kind of like pivot. Cause we're talking about like courts, um, almost as it's very funny because I've been reading this, um, all of this kind of uh, this sociology theory, writing this paper about courts as performance and like Potemkin villages and Potemkin villages being these like 
these uh, these you know built they, the legend goes that they were built by um, Andre Potemkin basically to like their cardboard structures so that Catherine the Great could like pass by like these beautiful looking villages on her way to Crimea like during the war and like the, like then now they are this metaphor for like something that is just there for the performance of it and they don't actually perform anything and so what that performance is going to do and I kind of think that this is actually right perfectly up Emily's kind of wheelhouse as someone who probably has studied and thought about performance a lot um, which is kind of just what is this going to mean um, for uh, you know what does having courts and those types of things and people being able to perform for a camera to present your case what do you think it's going to suddenly mean for for um uh for court systems or for frankly for uh for um mass media uh, i mean I, I i can i can tell you how many people are desperate for courts in the uh, cameras in the courtroom, I mean, have been for a long time, not only as an educational tool, but just as a transparency tool. It's, it's a, it'd be a great development if we could see more of that. I, I also teach trial practice at, a, at the University of Connecticut Law School. I'm now teaching law students how to try a case over Zoom. I mean, that's, that's how we're doing our, our, our practice right now. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I will tell you, it's an entirely different animal to try a case over WebEx or over Zoom. It, it really is. And one, the confidence that a courtroom can often instill in the litigants uh, is, is gone uh, when it comes to if you're doing a hearing over FaceTime, boy, it really, it really changes the dynamic. So I don't know how long it's going to stick, but lawyers, too, are going to have to learn a whole new set of skills, how to try a case on FaceTime, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I know several um, just acting coaches who have coached lawyers and how to you know, take presence in a room and how to, how to work it and stuff. And so, yeah, exactly. I imagine it's, it's going to go to zoom. The one, the one great thing is that if you're in a criminal trial and your client starts, you know, audibly, you know, calling witnesses liars and gasping, or if they, <laughs> they, you know, you could, if they start engaging in some sort of allocution with the court that you don't like, you can just have connection issues, which is just a great <laughs> gift for everybody. If that yeah. can happen. Is that so hard to read? I think the connections issue. Has anyone seen the video that's been circulating about the who, um, like the the representative from the World Health Organization with Taiwan, listen, getting questions from like the about the the situation in Taiwan and him continually saying like there's tech, there's clearly not technical issues. And he continuously says like, I can't hear you. It's technical issues because he doesn't want to actually say, answer the question about what's happening in Taiwan. Yeah. And like, does that repeatedly? That seems like, that seems like a fucking nightmare to me. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I mean, my concern would be, I, I'm not concerned at all about appellate courts. I, I think appellate arguments are perfectly well suited for Zoom. Uh, whether at the medium or Supreme Court level. Uh, I am concerned about trial court level stuff, uh, particularly stuff for uh, criminal cases, cases with uh, people who are indigent, uh, any sorts of cases with people who are less fortunate. I just think that the, the disconnect uh, of Zoom or any video makes it easier uh, to make people abstractions and to uh, have judges and opposing lawyers and prosecutors uh, not treat them as people, not treat them as real. Mm -hmm. You know, you, the, the results from the uh, video arraignments that have been experimented with across the country are mixed. 
I think, uh, particularly when they're done in a way where the attorney isn't even there with the person who's being arraigned. Right. So I think it's absolutely crucial that any sort of video have uh, the counsel, the attorney present with the represented. I don't think it works otherwise because you just can't have the communication without that. And I'm deeply skeptical about anything involving substantial rights uh, being done by video. Yeah. There's also some very weird unintended consequences that happens when you take these kinds of proceedings and put them online. I got involved in our local politics here in Burbank a little, and I started showing up at, um, at city hall meetings, and it turns out that there's someone at another Southern California town who became a viral comedy sensation by using the public comment period to do like a type five, knowing that they'd be mirrored to YouTube under transparency rules. And then he got on Ellen, and now he's got a career. And so, of course, Burbank being a place full of people who wish they had a career in comedy, we now have people showing up and doing stand-up, not good stand-up, during the public comment period in these heated city hall meetings over really important things like whether we're going to have no-fault evictions. It's a bizarre circumstance. But honestly, I mean, there's least... honestly that is awesome, though. I mean, yeah, well. I, I mean, like... There's never been anything funny that has ever happened at a DC uh, zoning board meeting, right. or, or like like if if, if people want to make that funny uh, and want to use it in a in an LA stand up kind of way, I I gotta say I'm for that. Don't forget, judges aren't immune to those those temptations either, right? I um, mean, you, you, if you go onto YouTube, you can see lots of videos of these judges who hold these video arraignments that have existed for years now, where there's always something lurking in the back of my mind that is that this judge is trying to make a name for themselves, either as uh, you know, an eminently compassionate person or that they're really a no-nonsense judge, and you have to wonder if some of the results that are going to be meeting out. Are you saying that our public leaders are like <laughs> are egomaniacal and have self-interest, Mike? Like, I, who, I, don't I, know, I guess I'm getting there. Yeah, I just <laughs> refer you all go to YouTube and Google and and do a search for the federal judge song, um, which uh, you know is a work of cosmic art. Um, I want to bring in Jen Zaman, who has a follow-up question uh, to our the one that we were talking about before about remedies. Uh, uh, Jen, who is uh, a, a longtime uh, lawfare uh, reader and a friend of Re the Rational Security podcast, and has even sent Rational Security a bottle of scotch. Uh, wow. Which I think is really uh, like people like, can send uh, me a bottle of scotch. The, <laughs> Just say way above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, Jen, what's your question? Oh, we got to unmute. Turn you. on your mic. Hang on. Oh, hang there, on. We got it. Oh, now we can hear you. There we are. Okay, we got you. Um, so, like Ken was saying that um, you know. You can't fix the political process by just automatically referring to, you know, criminal action. But it's like, I mean, what recourse does the public even have? I mean, I mean, people have to be held accountable. I mean, there are so many angry people out there right now. I mean, like, there's been a lot of dis disinformation. There's been um, so many delays. I mean, honestly, it feels malevolent. And I just... I just wonder, I mean, how are we supposed to hold public officials accountable if we can't utilize criminal 
at procedures against them, you know, for, for things like what I feel is willful negligence. Okay, can I suggest three? Um, first, the timing of this is, I mean, if, if anything about it is good, the timing of it is good, right? We've got an election coming up, which is how we hold uh, public officials accountable. We have an election and it's, it's an opportunity for us to grade people. Two uh, is uh, congressional oversight. Um, congressional oversight shouldn't stop. I was very critical of, uh, of uh, both houses of Congress, but particularly the House during the whole impeachment process uh, and the oversight process for, I think, not doing their jobs effectively. So there is a great opportunity for congressional oversight. And then three, that's, that's what we rely on the press for. We rely on the press to actually hold our elected officials accountable. And, uh, and honestly, I've been quite critical of sort of the press as a, as a whole uh, for how it's, uh, it's sort of uh, 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 done its job in that regard. I think, unfortunately, what we've seen is a lot of the press sort of chasing uh, every uh, word Trump says around uh, sort of like a, a dog with a squirrel. And I think there's a lot of room right now for the press to sort of uh, get serious and hunker down. I, and it's a mistake to, to uh, talk about the press uh, sort of as one monolith. I think the New York Times has done an incredible job. I think the Washington Post has done a very good job. I think the Wall Street Journal has done a very good job, but there's a lot of work uh, that, that certainly can be done and should be done. And I think a lot of it will be done in that regard too. Um, Jen kind of follows up in the chat that she goes, that's assuming we have free and fair elections come November. Um, and Jen, to that point, I actually am going to talk to Ben, or we're going to discuss later, hopefully, um, some future people to have on, um, one of whom is Nate, I would like to propose Nate personally, who is a professor right of law idea. at Stanford and who has been basically the world leader during this, um, during the coronavirus uh, epidemic of instructing different governments in exactly how to uh, move their elections. Uh, and you have all kinds of fascinating, um, all kinds of fascinating um, answers to that question. It, you know, seems to be like going to mail ballots would maybe be a good way, but then a lot of communities don't trust mail ballots, I think for good reason. Um, and so there is, um, there is a lot to be said. Uh, we're hopefully going to get into this in its own episode. Um, before we kind of wind up, I kind of want to talk about the way that this is changed, take this out of like the courts and law and just talk about how this has changed content and how, everyone everywhere is consuming content and creating their own content of which this show with Ben and I, uh, that you were helping us create this content is part of, I've been really curious, uh, how, um, I don't know how Hollywood, I haven't heard anything about how Hollywood or anything is like kind of dealing with releasing more information. I've heard from a few friends who are comedy and TV writers that they're that and and do stuff like that, that there's less events and that they pitch less and that they have to pitch over Zoom and that there's all types of things like that. And so it's affecting them too. But actually it seems like one of the only industries that is not going to, if you can create it, uh, take a hit is like content creation. People are going to be in front of their screens and want things to watch and entertain themselves without a doubt the economy is ready for it. Um, 
Corey, you're a science fiction writer. Emily, you know, you are an actress and screenwriter. I would be really curious to hear both of your thoughts about like how uh, how that how the world is kind of coming up to meet that. Yeah, I want to so, know what's happening in Emily's writer rooms. Uh, um, well, stuff is definitely still in development. Like people are still pushing forward. I've heard of uh, virtual rooms and stuff like that. I feel that people are they're not getting the flow in the in the rooms as they're used to getting in person and so it's a, it's a bit of a challenge for that um i had a couple of projects that were sort of a little bit lower and um they are i don't know how long but they're they're delayed and so i was like good but um yeah but then i just keep thinking about i don't know the world that i'm writing for so <sighs> That's that's my big my big thing, and also like yeah, we can we can we can write this, but when do we sh how do we shoot it? It's such a great point. It's I don't really, I don't know. I really interesting yeah. question. Yeah, I I have three books out in 2020. It was going to be a big year for me. Two were supposed to launch at Comic Con. In theory, they're still launching at Comic Con, but I would bet you a testicle, albeit not one of mine, that there won't be a Comic Con this year. Uh, and, and so it's been, it's been very anxiety provoking. Like the last part tube I got in before we all went on lockdown was to fly to New York and meet with my publishers for an all day meeting to plan two of the six tours that I was supposed to be going on in the U S UK, Canada, and Germany in 2020. And my guess is they're all canceled. I mean, none of them have been formally canceled, but I would be very surprised again if any of them came off. And, and, you know, yes, we've got these books in the pipeline. They will probably get printed. I'm not sure, maybe. But uh, do we have booksellers apart from Amazon? I mean, if, if one thing is definitely going to come out of this, it's that indie bookstores are just, just going to be obliterated because Amazon is an essential industry because they will ship you Bumwad and, uh, and, and Bleach Wipes. Uh, and so they can ship you books too. But, you know, our local indie bookseller, uh, is not even allowed, the owner is not allowed to go in and pack mail orders here in Burbank. So I, I you know, I don't even know who's going to be selling my books when my books are sold. We've been in production on the audiobook of the Third Little Brother book all week. And uh, normally I would just go down to the studio in North Hollywood with the voice actor, Amber Benson from Buffy, and she would get in the, in the box and I would sit there with the director and we record and we've all been on Zoom together. And she's been in her basement studio and she's doing an amazing job uh and I, well that will be an all digital sale but i don't know what's going to happen with the print books i mean it's really up in the air i i have one suspicion and this comes from my hidden background prior to law school as i went to film school and i went to film school right in the wake of the blair witch project which is when sort of the industry changed <laughs> for a lot of micro budget <laughs> Oh, folks, right? Yeah. This notion that with a big PR budget, but a $0 production budget, you can make some pretty amazing stuff. And it's that whole, you know, what is it? You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Maybe that's, I'm butchering the, whatever it is. But the, the truth is that these indie filmmakers, they, some of them will probably break quarantine. That is my guess is what's going to happen. Yeah. But this boredom, this boredom and this insatiable desire to create my my optimistic take is that you're actually going to see some pretty innovative, pretty amazing indie stuff sure. coming out in the next few months, which is going to be good. I mean, but that doesn't it's, it's not going to fix the industry, but, but course, I'm actually right. I'm. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you, Mike. I mean, we share your optimism, but I totally Corey, go ahead. Sorry, but I, I agree. I was going to say, you know, the genre of science fiction was invented 
during an apocalypse, right? Mary Shelley and her much older weird boyfriend and their pals decamped to a little house outside of Geneva during the year without a summer, which was the year unbeknownst to them that a volcano halfway around the world had blotted out the sun, caused a crop failure, and sent tens of millions of people walking across the ever-dark fields of Europe looking for food. And she sat in that house and wrote Frankenstein. So, yeah. you know, yeah, adversity is the mother of invention and all. Uh, and, and certainly I think that we will see lots of fiction about it. I, I am fortunate enough to have a, a, a book out right now that includes a novella that is a retelling of Poe's Master of the Red Death. That's about plutocrats shitting themselves to death in a luxury bunker that they have built in the uh, um, mistaken belief. That's the content we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that, that story is getting a lot of attention. It's very good. And, and you know, I uh, actually had a famous rock and roller uh, get on the phone with me about two and a half weeks ago to say, I, I want to buy this. I've done some good science fiction TV shows. I've got a lot of money. They've had a good track record. I want to buy it and I want to make a, a thing out of it. And I'll speak to you right after I get back from this giant show in Mexico City I'm about to go to. And I have not heard from him since. And I'm a little worried to query and figure out what's going on since. Oh my God. But in terms of content, I don't know. I mean, like if we're all making like coronavirus stories, all of us at home, like I, will people want to watch that? Because we've all experienced it. Like the world is experiencing it. And, and that's not what we're going to want to watch. I kind of love this. I want, we have to end because uh, we have a hard stop today, unfortunately, but, um, but Emily, we would love to have all of you. We'd love to have you on again at some point in the future. It would be so fun. This was great. It was kind of a really, we really had no idea. Ben and I didn't know any of you were coming. And so this was like the best of possible worlds. Um, do you guys each want to kind of like say something really quick? I'm going to go ahead and say that each of you should buy Mike Chase and Cory Doctor's books uh, right now. Um, oh, and Benjamin Wittes's book right now. Well, and from your local bookstore, if possible, uh, wipe it down, wipe it down in rubbing alcohol, and uh, have it have it have them hand it to you in a paper bag from a safe distance. Um, but yeah, that sounds. Does uh, Mike get us started? Just kind of say say give your sign off and whatever you want to kind of wrap up with. Yeah, I'll just say I thought this was great. And this was a great group with a lot of diverse insights. So this was this was really fascinating thing. Uh, I want to just edit one remark I made at the beginning today is when I said that there's nothing funny uh, about the virus or nothing funny about right now. What I will say is I've actually been really impressed with how much comedy and humor and and great content has has come out. Um, I found that the dynamic on crime a day has been much, just much more fun and much more wonderful in this time. So I hope that uh, sort of as a, as a culture, as a, as a people, we can keep that going no matter what happens, because uh, this forcing us all inside has actually, uh, I think, produced some, some pretty nice fruits. So I hope I, I hope that continues. Yeah. Thanks. Well, Billy? excellent. Mike, come back and join us sometime. Uh, 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 during the week or, or uh, we can we can talk about uh, crazy fact patterns that uh, yeah, amount absolutely. to criminal violations. That's right. Emily? Uh, I got nothing to sell. <laughs> so I, I will I will say that uh, Corey's book Radicalized is is incredible. It's it's a it's a wonderful book. Cool. It was great having you. Thanks for coming, Emily. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having me. Ross, you're up. Yeah, look, thanks for having me. Thanks for Mike for inviting me. Ben, it was 
uh, great to meet you and Kate and Ken and Corey. And I follow uh, most of you on Twitter. The others I will follow on Twitter. I continue to find Twitter a great resource, but it was great to spend this time with you. Thanks. Yeah. So good to see you. That's the nicest thing I've heard anyone say about Twitter in a long time. Uh, so uh, to, to Jack Dorsey, um, uh, Ross Garber is your friend. There you go. Uh, you accidentally, I think, well, I think you got rid of Ken White, but oh, anyway, oh, I, it's okay. Oh, Corey, Corey, that, that, was, that, that was not on purpose. Let me bring Ken White back. Sorry. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I like this story to make stuff for real, I suppose. Uh, I think that one thing that this crisis has taught us is that the founders of EFF were right 30 years ago when they said, you know, civil liberties online are civil liberties, period. And that, uh, you know, if we don't figure out things like broadband policy and speech policy, and really importantly right now, competition policy online, then the nervous system of the coming century will be dysfunctional. I think we're, we're living through the failure of that warning to be heeded, but it's an opportunity that we shouldn't miss. Yeah, I'm so there with you, Corey. I hope we can do a whole show and have you back on again to talk about that specifically because I feel like that's so clear in the last couple of weeks. And we've talked about it obliquely before, but it would be great to have you on again to talk it's about it more in depth. Crawford and Tim Wu on to talk about competition and broadband. Yeah, do, would you do a show with Tim Wu? Sure, I've known Tim even longer than Emily. We went to elementary school together in Toronto and he shot my dwarf in the back with his crossbow when I was nine. I love that. that okay, that's so we'll pretty that. awesome. It's done. Consider it done. I've I'll text him now and like ha- figure that out. That sounds great. Cool. Thanks, Corey. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks so great to have on. you. So Ken White seems to have vanished, um, which is my fault. Uh, I have, uh, as a result of a typo, obliterated Ken White which to every, uh, I'm sure Michael Avenatti will be pleased by that. Um, uh, uh, To everyone else, I apologize. Um, And look, uh, tomorrow there won't be any fun, but in lieu of fun, uh, we'll be here at five and you should join us. We'll be here in five with our guest, Danielle Citron, um, who will be take talking- Take two on Danielle Citron. Take two on Danielle Citron. But I mean, you can't get enough of Danielle Citron. So you it'll can. be great. She's yeah. awesome. Well, I'll see you tomorrow, Ben. Take care, Kate.